Well, I want to talk with you for just a few minutes about defining moments. Have you ever had a defining moment in your life that when you look back over the trajectory of your life, you realize, well, at at that moment, my life took a turn. As I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty skeptical by nature. And for a long time, I didn't believe the different things that Jesus said because I didn't believe that the Bible was God's word. And I didn't believe that there was a Bible. But I would pray this prayer every night. I would say, God, if you're there, if there is a God... Would you show yourself to me? Because if you're real, I want to know you. And you know what? That was a defining moment in my life. Here's why. God answered that prayer. He did reveal himself to me. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a skeptic, that you're right at home. You're you're seated in a room with hundreds of other skeptics. In fact, I'm still a very skeptical person. I didn't believe in Jesus because I stopped becoming a critical thinker. I believed him because as I looked at the evidence and as I looked at the ancient scriptures, especially the New Testament and how many ancient copies there are of it, it was my skepticism that led me to the conclusion there's something different about this book. There's something supernatural about this book. And in this room today, there are hundreds of us who are following Christ, and you can ask my wife, I'm still so skeptical. That's why I was a journalist before I became a pastor, and that's why some of my stories um, you know, got different people's attention, because I, I, I don't necessarily just believe what people say. If you're a skeptic, you're welcome here today. If you're hurting, you're welcome here today. You're seated in a room with dozens and hundreds of other people who have found that The greatest healing for our hurts is not in another person, it's not in a drink, it's not in success, it's not in denial, it's not in busyness, it's in Jesus. And I want to talk to you about the defining moment in your life. See, in a life there are a number of defining moments, but there will be one moment in your life that will be the most defining of all your moments. And that's the moment when you finally answer for yourself this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, was he just a, you know, a, a crazy teacher 2,000 years ago? Was he maybe a, a good teacher who wasn't God? The evidence doesn't seem to support that one very well. Or, or was, was he maybe God himself? Your answer to that question What you choose to believe in your heart of hearts and your inner person will be the most defining moment of your life and of your eternity. We're going to look this morning at just one claim that Jesus made, and he actually made this claim on the first Easter Sunday. It's found in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Here's what Jesus says. He's talking to his disciples and he says, this is what was written. The Christ must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. In other words, there were all these ancient prophecies about the Messiah, God himself, who would come to the world to forgive the sins of man. And and the biggest of those prophecies is that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again. Now, here's the crazy thing that Jesus said, and I had so much fun this week looking up statements that people have made that turned out to not be true. Did you know that just as recent as 2007, Steve Ballmer, the CEO of Microsoft, said, the iPhone will not get any market share. That iPhone's a joke. 
Well, he was proved wrong. There was a time when Napoleon, uh, a guy was working on a steam-powered ship. And he was trying to show it to Napoleon, and all Napoleon's guys got him around, and he said, what, a ship that has a fire on board and that's supposed to make it go? Don't waste my time with this. That was Napoleon's great claim. You know, claims have a way of looking really true. In 1937, the New York Times wrote with confidence, a rocket will never leave the atmosphere of the earth. New York Times, paper of record. Jesus made some outrageous claims. And if, cl- if his claims are not true, he doesn't deserve your attention. But if his claims are true, you do well to investigate them. I want to draw your attention to just this one claim of his today. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' followers. There's about 11 or 12 of them at this time. Maybe a little more than that. They are hunted. They have no building, they have no funds, they have no army. The Roman army had just killed Jesus three days earlier. All the authorities of the day are are literally hunting Jesus' followers. And here's what he says to them. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name among all nations. Now, just think about that claim for a moment. Think about if if Alexander the Great had said that, or if Julius Caesar had said that, or if Plato had said that, or Socrates, or Shakespeare. If they had said that, would, would more than a billion people today be gathering to remember them? Here's the thing. No matter what you believe about Jesus, no matter what you believe, you have to acknowledge this fact. Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. And we have ancient manuscripts dating to about the first century that record him saying this, okay? So it was not written a few hundred years ago by one guy. We have thousands of copies from before 1000 AD. There are thousands of copies that go back of Jesus saying this. And here we are today. And what are we doing Well, we're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And you know what? We're not the only ones. In every country, this is happening. In some countries, it's happening in houses with the doors closed because it's illegal to say it, but it's happening. And you know, it has happened every Easter Sunday for the last 2,000 years. It's happened every Sunday. So no matter what you believe about Jesus, you you have to at least acknowledge he made this one audacious claim, and it's true. So I want to challenge you to, to keep joining us here as we examine more of Jesus' claims to see if they're also true. I'm going to tell you a short story about a guy named Louis Zamperini. Louis was born about 1919 in Torrance, California. A son of Italian immigrants had a strong, thick Italian accent and was a total troublemaker. Got in trouble all the time. So he was always running away from people. And he had no skills. Nobody liked him. He was kind of the joke of the town. And then one day, his brother who ran track realized, Louis pretty fast. And at that time, track was kind of like the NBA or the NFL. 
Kids all across the country in the 1920s and 30s would, would watch these track stars. And Louis became this suddenly rising track star, breaking every state record in California in high school and then in college. In fact, at age 19, he became the youngest American to go to the Olympics and represent the United States of America on, in the track and field events at age 19. You know what Olympics those were? It was the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And Louis ran such an incredible race that afterwards, one of the political leaders there said, I want to see that guy and talk to him. So Louis was ushered over to Adolf Hitler. This is before World War II. And, and spoke personally with the Fuhrer. This guy had a life with so many incredible defining moments. He goes to the Olympics. Shortly after the Olympics, World War II breaks out. Louis was set. He was poised to break the world record in his running events. And then the 1940 Olympics, which he'd been training for as long as he could remember in his life, they got canceled. Canceled because of World War II. Louis got stationed at Pearl Harbor. Pretty soon, he went up on some flights in a B-24 bomber where his plane got shot. One time, his plane got shot 549 times. He was one of the only guys to survive the flight. Soon after that, Louis was on another flight that went down in the Pacific Ocean. And there was Louis floating on a raft. Of all 11 guys on board, only three survived. One was physically injured. The other one was fine physically, but mentally he was just losing it out there on the raft with sharks rubbing up underneath it. Louis kept his mind. He stayed as strong as he could with no food and water. Ended up in a Japanese concentration camp. Louis has this incredible story of defining moments. In fact, it's such an incredible story that the New York Times bestselling author, Laura Hillenbrand, she wrote the story Seabiscuit, if any of you saw that movie. Laura Hillenbrand wrote a, a, a book about Louis, and it's called Unbroken. Unbroken, because it looks like this guy just went through life, and somehow, thing after thing, he was never broken. In fact, the story is so powerful that Angelina Jolie picked it up and decided, I want to make a movie out of this. And in December, the movie directed by Angelina Jolie is going to come out, and you'll see all the previews for Unbroken. Louis Zamperini's alive today. He's 97 years old. And if you asked him, Louis, what was the defining moment of your life? It wouldn't be seeing Hitler. It wouldn't be being on a raft in the ocean. It wouldn't be surviving the Japanese concentration camp. It wouldn't be going to the Olympics as a 19-year-old. In fact, if you asked Louis, if you said, would Unbroken be a good name for your life? He'd say, no, it wouldn't. You know why? Because when he returned from World War II, he was totally broken. Suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. Became an alcoholic. Within a few years after he returned, it looked like he was going to die from his alcoholism. It was then in 1949 that his wife there in the Los Angeles area heard about a tent preacher. And his wife actually is quoted as saying, I'd been burnt by these tent preachers and I don't trust them. But she was so desperate for her husband that she went to hear Billy Graham at his Los Angeles crusade in 1949. And while she was there, 
God just got through to her heart. And she realized Jesus is real. He is the hope we need. And then she invited her husband. And Louis not only trusted in Christ, but when he trusted in Christ, it transformed his life. Set him free from those nightmares he'd been having. Set him free from alcoholism. And Louis has lived from 1949 until today as a follower of Christ. And he would tell you, I was broken, but I've been repaired. That's what we mean when we say resurrection. On Easter, you hear this word resurrection, resurrection. What does it mean? Resurrection means to take a broken thing and repair it. In fact, those, those airplanes that Louis flew around in in World War II, tens of thousands of them are at the bottom of the ocean. Well, now there are groups that, that go out and they find these planes and they resurrect them. They pull them up out of the water. And then they spend years sanding off the corrosion, replacing the parts, and they restore them. When we as followers of Christ say resurrection, what we mean is that Jesus found us when we were buried in the depths of our sin. He he raised us from the dripping evils of this world, and he restores anyone who trusts in him. So I could tell you about this all day. I could tell you about how he gives us hope. I could tell you about how he changes the way I think. I could tell you all about the power of the resurrection, but today I'm going to do something a little different. I'd rather show you the power of the resurrection. You know how many minutes there are in a day? 1,440. You know how many hours there are in a week? 168. It's interesting to me that rich people cannot buy more hours. Scientists cannot invent new minutes. You cannot even save time to spend it on another day. You've got a little time today. You say, well, I'd like to save it up for tomorrow. You can't do that. Do you number your days? Do you realize how important every single day is? It all comes down to this moment for Super Bowl 42. That day we were the underdogs. It was a game many thought was over before we even played. Unless the Giants can come back here, the undefeated Patriots are poised to make Super Bowl history. I knew I was open, but I wouldn't be open for long. Direct snap to Manning. Back to throw. The rush. As I look back, it was easy to see Eli was under duress. Gonna be hit. Gonna be sacked. No, no, he got out of it. Unbelievable. I remember the first moment when I became completely blown away and intrigued with the idea of being a magician. That was the moment that I knew that I could actually be good at this. It is the most fun thing in the world to me. I tend to like questions a lot more than answers. And what a magic trick does is it forces you into a place of questioning and it pulls the rug of reality out from underneath you to where you're literally left in a place where you don't know what is happening. 
I remember when I was 14 and I recorded my first song. My mom actually helped me to record it. She had some recording gear and it was the most amazing thing to hear yourself recorded. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be a musician for a living. I didn't even think that was possible. As a magician, you're very skeptical and you realize that most of what's going on behind the scenes is fake or false. The idea of an all-powerful God seems incredibly silly. And when I talk to people that would go to church, I can remember thinking that they were just falling for a simple magic trick. It's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain controlling everything. grown up understanding how to make people believe something was real when it was really not. I am a master of phoniness. I'm a, I'm a charlatan by craft. But I began to ask myself a big God question. I said, God, if you are real, then I need you to bring me back behind the curtain. I need you to show me how it works. And I need you to make this so real to me that I cannot ignore it. never forget the day this man walks into my room and he said, Mr. Monroe, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have, you have cancer. I said, what? And he looked at me and said, Mr. Monroe, he said, we cannot cure you of your disease. My wife and I were we were in a bad place. God, where are you? I guess you aren't that great. I had been married for five years. I had just a three-year-old girl and a two-year-old little boy. And I needed, I needed more time with my family. I needed more time. Giants drafted me in the sixth round of the 2003 draft, and uh, it was it was everything that I was looking for. You know, I had some tremendous challenges uh, through college, and getting on, getting the field, getting the recognition, and now I felt like you know th th this is finally it. So 
it was it was about that it was about that glory for me as as a rookie, and I, I just enjoyed every moment of it. You know, most people would like to think that, you know, money would solve all your problems. And I found that the money only multiplied the evils that were in my life. It just gave me access to more of the things that I craved the most, whether, you know, if I had women, it just, you know, it just made me that much more likable by women. If I, I loved it, I loved alcohol. Now I was able to get all the alcohol I wanted. I loved, you know, now, whereas maybe in time past, I didn't have marijuana. And now I'm able to buy all the marijuana that I wanted. You know, I was one person in public and, and, a, and a totally different person in private. My struggles with alcohol were a lot more than just having a good time and getting wasted and laughing away. I was totally, you know, just inebriated to the point where I couldn't keep my composure. There were times where my blackouts, you know, led me to places where I woke up the next day and naked in a bed and not knowing you know, what happened the night before. You know, I smoked weed every single day throughout my rookie year, and I began to not just smoke the weed, I began to sell the weed. I'll never forget those sirens in my rearview mirror, the sound and, and how my heart dropped in that very moment. You know, being asked to get out that car and, uh, and them searching the car and pulling out that half a pound of marijuana. And uh, it was a deflating moment in my life. For the first time, you know, as I was being pulled into that Fort Lee jail cell, I realized that I was broken. You know, I was broken and there was no one to look at other than myself. On the outside, you look great. But deep inside, you're searching for something you haven't yet found. There must be something else in life than this. When I was a little girl, we kind of struggled financially. My mom being a single mom with two kids at 18, it was obviously it was a difficult situation to be in. When I was 10 years old, my cousin, who was three, was like a little brother to me. He was beaten to death by his stepfather. How could I trust in a God that would allow something like that to happen? It just spiraled into depression, and I ended up hanging out with people who had issues like mine in their life and ended up getting involved in drugs and just continued to fuel that depression. When I was 16, I was a um, very outspoken atheist and really searched a lot of different religions and just felt so empty in everything, whether it was in drugs or sex or even just deep thinking and philosophies. It just seemed to all leave me really empty. And uh, since there wasn't anything in life that satisfied the emptiness, I just didn't want to do life anymore. There were times I cried myself to see. I made a plan to commit suicide. I just didn't want to wake up anymore. I just was tired of waking up, and I just thought, I can't keep doing this. Only to wake up that I didn't. 
The day I planned to commit suicide, I came home from school early and my grandma wasn't supposed to be home. And she just had a way of knowing knowing when something was wrong. And she just looked at me and said, something's wrong with you. You're going to church. And that was the last place in the world I wanted to be. I hated Christians. I hated church. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to go to church. And we got into a crazy screaming match. And I just remember saying, if you'll just shut up, I'll go. And when it's over, then I'll miss suicide. Millions are crying, what can I do to be saved from the pressures of life? The pressures are just so great. We have great technology to save time, but we have less time than ever. The tensions in the home, problems at work, health problems, making ends meet. We want to scream at life. We want to escape from life. Adlai Stevenson once said, it's not the days of your life but the life in your days that count. You have so much time, but for what? The things that are broken in your heart and life can be restored in Christ if you put your faith and your confidence in Him. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead for you. He wants to give you guidance in your life. He wants to give you a peace and joy and assurance that if you died, you'd go to heaven. But first... There must be a change. You must turn around. That's called repentance in the Bible. Repent. Repent. When I was in that jail cell, I really just knew I was at the end of my own strength. I realized I'm 24 years old, NFL Special Teams Rookie of the Year, New York Giants Rookie of the Year, and I got everything that anybody could potentially want. But it didn't lead to anything apart from decay and death and disappointment. And I was broken. You know, I was broken and, you know, and I realized that, you know what, there was no one to look at other than myself. And at that moment, nothing else mattered. I just knew I needed something more. I just cried out in desperation and just said, God, all I know is I need you. And that following weekend, after I got arrested, I ended up in the back of a church in a fetal position, crying and weeping out to God. I could no longer resist God's love. As I received God's forgiveness, I knew that I was, I was new. The person of Jesus Christ was now a reality in my life. It wasn't just a myth. It wasn't just a figment or this, this idea. The forgiveness of sins is what actually sets man free. And I was immediately transformed. <laughs> I knew that I experienced a love that, was, that had changed my life forever, and I knew there was never going to be any looking back for me. Time is collapsing on us. How much longer do we have? The psalmist requested that the Lord remember how short my time is. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I'm withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Think of it. God will endure forever. But on this earth, we're like a shadow. 
that's declining. We're all dying. From the moment you were born, you started dying. How much longer do we have? The cancer doctor looked at me and said, Mr. Monroe, so we cannot cure you of your disease. There is something, however, that we would like to try. It's called a bone marrow transplant. The problem with your body is that your white blood cells are making bad copies of bad copies. Your body is deceiving itself. It's playing a trick on itself. So what we need to do is we need to completely destroy your system. And what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to find someone in the world whose DNA matches yours close enough to grow a brand new immune system, a brand new blood system from scratch. We're going to substitute someone else's perfect blood on your behalf so that you can live again. God said without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There has to be a substitute for you who will take the judgment that you deserve, the death that you deserve, and that substitute became Jesus Christ. I was thinking to myself, man, my time is running out. I am dying of cancer. It's been hard to deal with right now. Peyton is three years old and Gavin is two years old. My two babies, should this take my life early, I love you. They began the most vicious concoction of chemo, the goal of which was not just to destroy the cancer in my body, but was literally to destroy me. It was hell. It was a slow death. I really am scared. I'm really trying not to be fearful, but I am fearful. I'm trying to be strong for my wife and for my, for my family. But uh, I'm pretty scared. We are waiting to hear from the National Bone Marrow Donor Program, seven million people currently registered on the database. And there was one perfect match for me, just one. It was a 19-year-old female. They said, Mr. Monroe, your bone marrow transplant is scheduled for April 23rd. You're gonna get a brand new birthday. They said, you are gonna be like a baby inside the womb all over again. The nurses celebrate your new birth in the hospital. And I heard that terminology before too, somewhere at the churches that I had attended, but literally I was gonna be born anew. And then I'll never forget on April 23rd, they brought this bag of blood into my room and everyone was hoping in that moment that my body would receive that new life, that new blood. I sit here today, 100% completely cancer free. When they look at my blood today, they see a 19 year old female. They see her, they see XX chromosome. And I'm reminded of a verse in Galatians 2. It says, uh, it's no longer I who live, but it's someone else who lives on the inside of me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith.
John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, knowing you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I'm fully convinced of the claims of Jesus as a skeptical person and as an illusionist. I know that the God of the universe has brought me back behind the curtain just like I asked him to. Cancer was how he did it through my life. And there's a spiritual cancer that's eating us away on the inside. And we're all longing, we're all begging for someone to step in and to save us from that condition. God looks at your heart and God sees that you have a spiritual heart disease and that spiritual heart disease is called sin. And we're all sinners. That means we've broken the laws of God. We've disobeyed God. We've rebelled against God. And because we've rebelled against him, we're going to have to face a judgment. Oh yes, there's coming a judgment. There'll be some day when you will stand before God at the great judgment day and you'll have to give an account of your life here and you'll have to give an account of what you did with Jesus Christ on this very night because there's going to be a judgment. But God's judgment is also tempered by his love and his mercy. He's willing to forgive you tonight. He's willing to give you a chance tonight. No matter how much time you've wasted in the past, you can still have tomorrow. I was sitting in the back of the church, slouched down in my chair with my arms crossed, and the preacher began to speak, and everything he said was straight to my heart, like I was the only person in the room. And he stops in the middle of what he's saying, and he says, there's a suicidal spirit in the room, and God wants you to know that he loves you. All the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I was like, this is just really freaking me out. I gotta get out of here. I got up and went towards the door after he dismissed the church, and a man grabbed me by the arm, and he was a white-headed old man, and he said, God wants me to speak to you, and he wants you to know that even though you've never known an earthly father, that he will be a better father to you than any earthly father could ever be. He said, he's seen you when you cry yourself to sleep at night. And when he said that, it really shook me because I cried myself to sleep every night since I was 10 years old. If I didn't cry, I couldn't sleep. But he said he sees you when you cry yourself to sleep at night. And he loves you so much. And he sent his son Jesus to die and bleed on a cross to take all of the pain that you're experiencing on himself so you don't have to experience it. He said, do you want him to take that from you? Because he died to take it. And I was like, well, you can try it. <laughs> you know, he was like, can I pray for you for that? And I was like, you can try it. I don't really believe in all this, but I know something crazy is happening right now. And so he put his hand on my shoulder and began to pray. And he said something like, God, I pray that you would wrap your arms around your daughter and let her know how much you love her. In my life, I searched for something to satisfy the longing in my heart. 
something you just can't explain that you have to experience where I literally felt like I was in front of the God of the universe. And the thing that I noticed, first of all, was that this God was so holy and awesome, and I was so not that. Some of you think that you're too bad to come to God. I've done too many things and gone too far. God's not waiting to judge you. God's not waiting to condemn you. God loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you, to shed his blood for you. He wants to put his arms around you and receive you. And he will take you and forgive you and love you and be your friend. This God was so holy and awesome. And if God had said, go away, it would have been right. It would have been justice for me. I know it. But the craziest thing was that he's drawing me in and taking me into his arms and saying, I love you just the way you are. I'm not shocked by any of this. And if you let me, I will make you new. I'm just so thankful that God sees us different than we are. He doesn't turn away, but he still looks at us with love. amazing to think that God is a father like that. of that, all I have to do is believe it and say, yes, change me. Yes, make me new. In Romans, the sixth chapter says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 Peter, it says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. He became sin. Think of it. Jesus Christ, this pure, this wonderful, the greatest person that ever lived, the holiest person that ever lived, the son of the living God, became sin. He had never known sin. And he became guilty at that moment of adultery. He became guilty of lying, of idolatry. He became guilty of every ugly, dirty thing you can think of because it was your sins poured out on him. Through Christ, we can have the most fundamental relationship in life restored. You say, well, Billy, what in the world do I have to do? First, you must repent of your sins. The apostle Peter said, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins be blotted out. What does repentance mean? Repentance means that you come to God and say, God, I'm sorry I've sinned. And we're all guilty. Every one of us, everyone that's ever been born is guilty. Have you repented? Are you sure of it? It means that you not only say, God, I'm sorry. It means that you ask him to help you to turn from your sins, to change your way of living, to get rid of those old habits you shouldn't have. 
And then you must come by faith. By, without faith, it's impossible to please him. The word faith means that you totally trust. The scripture says in Romans 4, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. I have to have righteousness to get into heaven. And I don't have any. Billy Graham is a sinner. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I come in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you can work your way to heaven, you'd get up to heaven and boast to everybody. Look what I did. I was such a good person. I got here on my own. You get there totally because of Christ. The fact that time is short calls for us to do something about it now because the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. You can harden your heart. You hear a message like this and it can be very dangerous because you'll harden your heart. And the next time you hear the gospel, your heart will be harder and harder and harder. Come to Christ now. If there's even a whisper in your heart that you need to come, you come and say, Lord, you have all of me tonight. I want to be sure that I'm ready to meet you. Come now. Come now. If you'd like to receive Christ, then you can pray a prayer like I did. Or like I did. Like I did. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. And I want to turn from my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as Lord. From this day forward, Jesus, I put my trust in you. And I surrender my life to you. And I surrender my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Please come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Would you close your eyes for a moment and so we can concentrate on our thoughts? The most defining moment of your life will be that moment when you decide for yourself, this is who Jesus is. And I, I just want to give you a chance right now, with everyone's eyes closed, I'm, I'm looking. If God's working in your heart today, and you think, yeah, I, I need Jesus in my life. If that's you, would, would you raise your hand? I'd just love to see who you are. love to pray for you. I see hands all across the room. I need Jesus in my life. Right now, I, I can't come down to your seat, but I want to take you by the hand spiritually and, and I want to pray with you. The, the incredible thing about Scripture as you read it is that the good news is that salvation is a free gift. To be forgiven of your sins, to have eternal life in Christ, you don't have to jump through religious hoops, you don't have to give a bunch of money to a church. God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm going to take your hand now and, and I'm going to 
walk you through a prayer that you can pray from your heart. Maybe you just prayed it on the screen and and it'll be a, a reaffirmation for you. The point of this prayer is not that there's a a magic set of words that get you into heaven. It's you from your heart calling out to God and saying, God, I understand that I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Lord, will you forgive me? Will you be my Savior? I'm going to pray that now. And whether you want to pray it out loud or in your heart, either way is fine. Pray along with me, dear Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've done things wrong. Lord, today, I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I ask for your forgiveness for my sins. Jesus, today, would you be my Savior? Would you give me a new life? I pray it in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together. And as we conclude, we want to give an opportunity if God is at work in your heart today. You see four crosses in this room that are lit up. There's three at the front here. And there's a really big one at the back, in the back corner. In fact, that one has 511 names on it. Your name might be on it. The names of folks that privately we've been, as individuals, praying, God, would you bring this person to the cross? Would you give them the hope that's in Christ? If God's working in your heart today, maybe you grew up in the church. Like I said, I had had been in the church my whole life, and internally I was such a skeptic. Maybe you've been going to church every Sunday your whole life, but today's the day where you realize, wow, this is real, and, and God's speaking to you. If that's you would you come to the cross? We've got four crosses. We're not all going to be looking at you and judging you if you come forward. We're going to be cheering for you. Because for me, that was the defining moment of my life when I came to a cross and said, Jesus, I give my life to you. If you've prayed that in your heart, we encourage you today to make your way to a cross. And if that one in the back is the easiest one for you, whichever one's closest to you, come to the cross now as we sing. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.